for listening to the Successful Mind Podcast. Yeah, and I know that the the suicides have been just unbelievable with the amount of people uh, right. that, that, that are taking their own lives is incredible. So, so let's talk about that for a second. You know, you hear 22 a day all the time, right? Well, there's yeah. a, a recent study out to give it another angle if you want to think about it. 7,000 plus killed in combat post 9-11, okay? Right. 30,177 active duty and post 9-11 veteran suicides. So to me, most of those are combat deaths, right? They've, it just happened later. Yeah. But if you walk it back, a large number of those deaths are combat related. Successful people learn how to make their minds work for them. We are Life Is Now, and this is the Successful Mind Podcast. Why don't you tell everybody who you are um, and just give yourself an introduction, and then we can just go ahead and get into the interview. Yeah, thanks. Um, my name is Scott Mann. I'm a uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Army Special Forces, otherwise known as the Green Berets. I spent about 23 years in the United States Army and about 18 of that as a Green Beret. Uh, the first part of my career was in Central and South America, working in the Andean Ridge as a member of 7th Special Forces Group, I think Ecuador, Peru, Colombia, during the 90s, pretty sporty time. Yeah. And then on 9-11-2001, the whole world shifted for the special operations community and certainly the Green Beret community. And we found ourselves working in Afghanistan. Either you, you, you had two phases of your life. You were either in Afghanistan or you were getting ready to go back. And you know, there's only 6,500 Green Berets in the whole inventory. They took us and split us right down the middle. Two groups really focused on Afghanistan, one of them being mine and the other was on Iraq. And you just were in a constant rotation and building partnership and relationships with, um, with, with the Afghan allies. How long were you active over there? Well, my first trip over was 2004 and my last trip over was 2011 to give uh -huh. you an idea. So okay. in a lot of trips in between three long tours, but a lot of shorter trips over. And honestly, you know, what's crazy about that, David, is that's nothing compared to some of the senior non-commissioned officers and operators who went over there 10, 12, even 14 times. Yeah, you know, it was, it's interesting. I remember thinking when all of this was going on and how long this war was and how many tours of duty these guys were doing. My father was in Vietnam. I served during the Cold War in Germany. I was an MP. Okay. Um, and I was thinking to myself, how, how screwed up are people going to be coming home from this with that many tours, uh, success, uh, you know, I don't even word I'm trying to look for. Yeah, successive tours. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, successive mm -hmm. tours. Like, we, yeah. I don't, we've never seen that before, have we? Not like no, that. No, not like this. I mean, your dad's experience was probably the closest, if you think about it, in that that was a 10-year war, right? Yeah. And, you know, then you would go over as an individual. You didn't go over as a cohort. So you went over as an individual, 
and you did your tour of duty and then you rotated home alone. And I, and I think that I have a very soft spot in, spot in my heart for the Vietnam population because I think we did them so wrong. Uh, but they, like what your dad and others went through, to me is probably the closest to what you saw in the post 9-11 generation. However, remember that the post 9-11 generation were mostly volunteers. Right. And, you know, President Bush, and, I, and I'm a very apolitical person on this whole long war thing. I think they were all equally underwhelming. Um, President Bush, if you'll remember, said in the very beginning, this is a war that's going to be fought in the shadows, right? This is going to be a war against terrorism. So you're going to have a small group of operators and intelligence professionals who do the bulk of the fighting so that the rest of the country can go on about its business. I think that probably screwed more of our people up than anything was the disassociation of the emotional load of combat onto the shoulders of less than 1% of the population and their families while the rest of the country was business as usual. And you do that for 20 years, you, that is, the, the load that that puts on any human is unsustainable and we're seeing it in the mental health numbers now. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that the, the suicides have been just unbelievable with the amount of people uh, right. that, that, that are taking their own lives is incredible. So, so let's talk about that for a second. You know, you hear 22 a day all the time, right? Well, there's yeah. a, a recent study out that give it another angle if you want to think about it. 7,000 plus killed in combat post 9-11, okay? Right. 30,177 active duty and post 9-11 veteran suicides. So to me, most of those are combat deaths, right? That's, it just happened later. Yeah. But if you walk it back, a large number of those deaths are combat related, uh, either post-traumatic stress, survivor's guilt, uh, TBIs, or some combination of that devil's cocktail. And what's even more concerning is that a large number of those were in the last three years. So now you add COVID to the mix. You add the fact that 73% of veterans feel betrayed from this Afghan departure, abandonment of our allies, an 81% spike in the VA hotline since August. Um, and then you look at those numbers that I just gave you on mental health and suicide. Yep. I think we are on the front edge of a tsunami of veterans mental health that we have never seen. And that's where I get really disappointed that our senior leaders, political, diplomatic, and even our generals are not talking about this in this kind of public space that you are in and I are in right now. Do you have any idea why? I mean, because people I talk to, they all say like, why what, like the queerest questions i hear why do we treat our vets we ask them we ask them to literally give their life for their country and we treat them like shit when they come home they don't get the care that they need they don't get the attention they don't get the opportunities uh they're stigmatized um and and was there any sign of this before in like the, the, actually just basically abandoning all these people over there was there any sign that that was actually going to happen beforehand hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, I think you make some really good observations and, you know, and I'll start by saying like our military officers, our senior officers are by and large good people, right? But they've gone through that same meat grinder that the others went through uh, in terms of just time. But also I believe the elements of careerism, David, have crept into the, you know, and basically in a lot of cases you've got, I believe, military officers wearing stars who are basically politicians, 
Okay. You know, they, they've, they've succumbed to the, the corrosiveness of power and careerism. Even Dr. Adam Gant from Wharton University talks about this in his testimony to the Senate Armed Services Committee that careerism, and I retired in 2013 as a lieutenant colonel who had been selected for three consecutive battalion commands because I didn't want to do it anymore. I could not, I could, I just could not play the game of the careerism and where things were going in Afghanistan to your second question. In fact, it, uh, we were doing a program in 2010 called Village Stability Operations where Green Berets, we got back to our roots. That's what Green Berets do is we work by, with, and through indigenous people. If you've seen the movie 12 Strong, yeah. uh, the Green Berets on horseback, think you know modern day Magnificent Seven, like that's what Green Berets do. We had gotten away from that for a decade after 9-11 because we were so angry for retribution that we just focused on like walking the enemy down and we kind of became a, a mini Delta force. But in 2010, we got back to our roots in Afghanistan. We started working with villagers. I talk about this in the pineapple book a lot. We called it village stability. But um, we had said all along, like, if, you know, we based this on the Vietnamese Green Beret or the Vietnam era Green Berets who did this with the Montagnards. And we said, like, they were forced to abandon their partners. They, the, the, the United States military, the politics, they made it too conventional and we abandoned our partners and Montagnards experienced genocide to the scale that to this day, Vietnam veterans weep over it. We can't do that. We got to stay. This is the long game. We've said it over and over again. Well, by 2013, we had abandoned the villages. We had pulled out of the places where we had worked and the Taliban swooped in for massive retaliation. And I would say it was the beginning of those provincial collapses that you saw in, 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 the, in the following year. So, so much so that I wrote a play, David, about the war, the Afghan war called Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret. It's on Amazon Prime now. And when you watch that play, it's about the abandonment of those villages. But you'll think that we wrote this after the collapse in Afghanistan. It's, really? so, it's so on point with the way it went down. So we saw this coming. Uh, the way that we've handled our relationship with that country and our partners really goes back to the Kurds in Syria, the Iraqi military and police, and even the Montagnards in Afghan uh, Vietnam. We have a systemic habit of abandoning our friends when it gets inconvenient for us. You know, one of the things uh, that the Vietnam generation military would say frequently was they wouldn't let us win. Why did they send us to a war that they wouldn't let us win? Do you feel right. that's the same thing with Afghanistan? Well, first of all, I, again, I want to throw a shout out to my Vietnam brothers and sisters, because every time I came back home from a deployment, there were Vietnam veterans in that airport waiting to greet us. Every time I seemed to have a low point in my career, there was a Vietnam veteran there to put his arm around me because he didn't want me to go through what, I, what he had been through. And, sure. you know, I, I will never forget that ever. Uh, and, and to think of what they went through and what we put them through, that they would be willing to do that for us. I hope that I get the chance to pay that forward like that for our next generation of warriors. But to the degree of not being allowed to win, I do think in a lot of ways that we tried to put a square peg in a round hole in Afghanistan. I don't believe that our any administration, diplomat or senior military officer had the depth of knowledge of that country yeah. that, they sh that they should have had to prosecute what needed to be done there. And by that, I mean, if you stop and think about it, because a lot of people go, well, we shouldn't have been there that long. We were doing nation building. They need to stand up on their own. And those are all valid points. But what I go back to is, first of all, what got us there in the first place? The worst terror attack on US soil in our history, right? And right. A, 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 an attack by a, a group called Al Qaeda, who 
planned, trained, prepared, and projected the worst attack in history from the very place that we just walked away from. Now, we knew that Al-Qaeda was mustering. Uh, a guy named Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was the leader of the Northern Alliance up in the northern part of the country, was reaching out to the agency. He was reaching out to anybody that would listen. He said, bin Laden is planning something against the U.S. He is going to strike. You need to let help, help me. I will stand against him because they were coming after him up in the north. Two days before 9-11, bin Laden sends suicide bombers to take out and kill Ahmed Shah Massoud. Why? Wow. Because they knew, he knew that's where we were going to go the minute we were hit. Right? That's how far in front of us they were. And you, no one ever talks about that, right? But the point is, we did not have a good ground intelligence capability in that country. We did not have a partner that could be an antibody to Al-Qaeda as they planned this attack. Now, fast forward, we built, this, we built this intelligence network. We built a partner capacity of commandos, Afghan special forces. We bled for it. And in the last couple of years of, of the war, honestly, David, the commandos and Afghan special forces were largely launching on targets against not just the Taliban, but ISIS and Al-Qaeda completely unilaterally while special operators, U.S. type, were in the Joint Operations Center watching on a drone feed. And, you know, we built a really capable force and we're pretty darn close to having an organic capacity that could have stood the long haul. And we walked away from all of it. And the American people are not hearing this. They're not getting this side of the story. Yeah. And, now, and now as Al-Qaeda reconstitutes in that country, there's foreign fighters from Syria, Iraq, North Africa, Southeast Asia, training in Helmand and Kandahar on the very Afghan army bases that we abandoned. And it's only been a couple of months. So we know they're going to come for us again. And just to me, man, what a tragedy to have spent 20 years building a, a partner force that could stand against them, and we just bailed on them. And it, it, it feels like a, a slap in the face to the, to the military and a slap in the face to the American people to have put everybody through that as you know i mean it's obvious the reason we we were there um i know that there was a there was a, a a lot of different ideas about it yeah but why would they why would they pull out the way that they did where they abandoned people they abandoned the equipment yeah i mean what was the reason for that any I, yeah. any clue well i talk about this in the book too and, and it, you know the book is not a political book or a military book it really is a story it's storytelling yes it is from the, from the lens of the people who lived it right the afghans and the in fact what i did david was i i asked two questions in the book as i did these countless interviews um, what does a promise mean to you and how far would you go to honor it and my dad and i were talking about that as this first unfolded and and what my actions should be should i be you know should i sit quiet or should I try to step in here and do something, even though I'm retired? And, and you know, those two questions came up. What does a promise mean? To you? How far are you willing to go? You know, um, and, and so I asked that question over and over again, and it was striking how when you ask that question to institutional leaders at the most senior levels, you kind of got the deer in the headlights look. And when you asked a veteran of special operations or a gold star mother, she would answer like that. She'd tell you exactly what a promise means to her. And she would tell you as far as it takes, right? Because that's how most of us feel about our friends. Yeah. Like we don't bail on our friends. We were taught we don't do that. When your friends are in trouble, you stand up for them. Well, how is a nation state any different? So go to your question. 
I believe that this was a political decision that started in the Trump administration. Both of those presidents wanted out of that, that country at all costs. And if you, if you know, and I'm asking people to sit their political affiliations aside yeah. and think about this apolitically and from a national security perspective, if you look at the way the Doha agreement went down under the Trump administration, they completely excluded the Afghan government from that deal. So how invested is a partner government going to be anything that we do right. in a peace deal that's made directly with the enemy? Right. I mean, so and then the Biden administration picked this thing up and they wanted out. They wanted out at all costs. I do believe that there were some senior military officers who who said there needs to be at least a twenty five hundred person residual force probably would have been enough. But I don't know how loud they said it. And I certainly from my position and what I in this, you know, again, maybe easy for me to say in as a civilian, but I, I think a lot of veterans feel this way is why did you not resign over this? Why did you not put your stars yes. on the table after 30 years of service and simply say, this is an immoral act and I cannot be a party of this, you know? And the response from a lot of the generals who have heard me say this and others, they get really angry. They do. And they say, they say how dare you insinuate that I, I should mind this, you know, if, if I did that in the face of an order, I serve at the pleasure of the president, then what if what would happen to the country if I step down? And I have a hard time with that response. And I am paraphrasing because we are trained as officers and sergeants that the, when you are faced with an illegal or an immoral order, you do not follow through with it. And this, in my assessment, to abandon a 20,000 part person partner force, to take away their contracting unannounced so that their medevac wouldn't fly, their air support wouldn't fly, they couldn't drop precision munitions, they had no intelligence platforms without warning to just take it in June yeah. and then just leave. That is an immoral action. And your silence doesn't make you a quiet profession. It makes you complicit. And I think a lot of people feel that way. I agree with you. I agree with you. A matter of fact, there's not anybody that I talk to that doesn't, doesn't have the exact same feeling in one way or another of what you just explained. It seems so absolutely outrageous. And there's a question that I keep getting to from individuals, which is, it seems like there's a ton of stuff that's just not being talked about, Out, even outside of, of, uh, outside of Afghanistan. But it's like it it kind of begins there in a way. Um, yeah, it does. It's like, here is this enormous, egregious thing that, that was done by our country, and nobody's saying a word. Why? No one's talking about it. I don't get it. And, and, and let me give you some examples on this, David. So um, I went up to Fort Bragg to meet with members of the, if you read the book, the members of the 82nd Airborne um, that helped us and really risked their careers. You know, they risked their careers because they went above and beyond. Their job was to pull security on the airfield, but they went above and beyond that. And they helped us pull people through that four foot hole in that underground railroad. And they did it at risk to their careers, at risk to their own lives, because they knew it was the right thing to do. But imagine these young paratroopers, these young Marines, 18 years old, 19 years old, it's their first deployment. And they're facing a sea of 5,000 people. And these people are not the enemy for the most part. These are moms and dads 
who see everything falling apart around them. They are holding their babies up in the air to get them above the clouds of tear gas. There are fathers with their daughters in their arms, taking their last breath, begging these young paratroopers, can you please just get me some water? My daughter is dying. Will you please help me? Will you please get me over the, the fence? My wife is going into labor. You know, these every second of every day, these paratroopers and Marines for five, six, seven days are standing watch and enduring and receiving elements of humanitarian suffering that no human should ever have to bear witness to. They come home from that after that horrific explosion. No one talks about it. No support groups, no therapy, just pack your shit and get ready for the next mission. And I talk to these paratroopers. I talk to them and I listen to them. Some of them weep. Yeah. Because there's nothing to, because they're not allowed to talk about it. There was no work on the moral injury at all. And to me, that is inexcusable for our senior officers and enlisted advisors to allow that kind of moral injury to occur and not deal with it on the home front. So it's, it's no one's talking about it. Well, is that actually what's happening? Are they being told not to talk about it? My understanding and what I was told is they were told not to talk about it. And I've got friends who are in U.S. Army Special Operations Command at the highest level who are told, if you bring up Afghanistan, that's the quickest way to end your career. Now, here's another example. Uh, Special Forces Command, my own regiment, who I love dearly, and I've done been a part of since I was a young man. You know, they have a podcast that they put out into the world called the Indigenous Report. Okay. And on that report, they talk about working with indigenous people because that's what special forces do. You know what they're not talking about? They're not talking about the abandonment of our commandos and the abandonment of our special forces partners. Like, how can you have a podcast called the indigenous approach? And just turn the page on the largest wholesale abandonment in American history and think that the listeners of this thing in other countries are listening going, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, really, U.S. Army Special Forces and the United States are the best in the world at partnership. I mean, that's insane. That's crazy to think that, that you know, anybody out there knows what we did. We should be on that podcast because we are Green Berets the brokers of human connection in hard places. Yeah. We should be talking about what's happened. We should be talking about like, how do we fix this? How do we, how do we set this right? How do we reestablish our reputation in the partnership space, right? Now, that is not a politically favorable solution, but the reality is if we're going to ask our, our young Green Berets to go into these awful places and build rapport and make connections, and, and turn their back on tribal leaders and think there's trust. I mean, how can we ask them to do those things when we s- abandon our partners from the mountain yards in Vietnam all the way to the Afghan? Yeah, I was going to say, we have a history of this, right? This oh, is, yeah. This oh, abandonment yeah. thing is like, we're going to use you and lose you. Yeah. I, in fact, we interviewed, Pineapple interviewed a, a Green Beret in Fayetteville, North Carolina, who is also pulling people out who have experienced genocide and being targeted. And he's pulled out several thousand. Here's the difference. His name is George. 
he's in his 80s and he's been doing this for 54 years. He's been pulling mountain yards out of Vietnam really? and helping them resettle on farmland in quiet places in North, rural North Carolina. My point is, this goes all the way back, you know, yeah. to, to the mountain yards in Vietnam, to the Kurds in Syria. And we keep doing this. And if you and I did this with our friends, we would be severely isolated and we would have no one to turn to when things fall apart. Right. Well, that is exactly the path that we're on right now. And that's why I wrote the book. That's why I wrote it as stories, because I want Americans to understand that, like, when you talk about double amputee Will Lyles risking his job to save his interpreter, you have to understand that that interpreter is who put the tourniquets on Will's legs. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to abandon somebody like that. Hell no. I mean, no way. You, and you can't ask. And, and, you know, George was asked, how long are you going to do this? And he said, till I quit breathing. And, and that's who our veterans are. That's who our Gold Star families are, our military families. They're not going to stop. They're going to continue to do this until properly relieved. But the problem is they've been on the phone for a year on the world's longest 911 call. They have no relief. They've tried to solve this Uncle Sam-sized problem with their military pensions. They've lost their jobs, cashed in their kids' savings accounts. Their mental health is in the toilet. And you know these Afghans that they're helping are being assassinated and hunted and targeted. And how, how does this end? I mean, how can we ask this most fragile population that gave us everything for 20 years to restore our nation's honor and keep these people alive? Like, it's, I can't it's even fathom back, Yeah, and, and it's basically turned back over into a terrorist state, right? I mean- It has, yeah, it has. Yeah, I interviewed uh, a guy named Lieutenant General Sammy Sadat in the interviews on my scottman.com website, and I interviewed him this week. He was the last commander, David, of the Afghan Special Operations Forces. Yeah. And uh, he also was in charge of Kabul. He was given Kabul right as Ghani got on a helicopter. Uh, so you can that imagine. That was some an experience getting that guy in the helicopter, right? Uh, that chapter is actually in the book. Uh, you got to read it. You got to read. It's like Lord of the Flies in real time. Um, but God, uh, Sadat was telling me, and he, and he plans on going back in. He wow. plans on going back into Afghanistan and, and mobilizing um, you know, the commandos uh, to take a stand. Um, but, but what he has to say about how this all went down and, and, and what Al-Qaeda is doing now, um, he's written a, a report on Al-Qaeda's uh, restructuring. He's tried to give it to Central Command here in the States. He's tried to give it to various intel agencies. For the most part, they would not take it from him. You know, and he was a very trusted asset for years. There's such a political clamp on this whole thing to just move past it that we're literally not taking source information in my, in my assessment that I'm hearing from the sources themselves that are, are providing real-time information on the reconstitution of Al-Qaeda. Uh, and again, they are, according to Sadat, they are in many ways, surpassing where they were pre-9-11. They are younger, they're more agile, they're competing against ISIS, so they're moving with more of a purpose and intention. Um, they are, the Taliban are giving them citizenship inside the country to move freely. They're collaborating with Iran now, which is extremely wow. scary. That's really um, scary, yeah. And again, no one's talking about it. It's as if, it's as if 9-11 never happened. It's as if um, this whole thing was just inconvenient and it's just time to go home. 
But I can tell you as a, as a guy that's, that's, that's uh, done this for a while is um, we may be done with Al Qaeda and the Taliban, but they are not done with us. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure they're never going to be done. I mean, um, (laughs) one thing, one thing you could say is that they're dedicated to their mission for sure. You know, there was, it was interesting. There was a, there was something that I saw on the internet uh, a few days ago where on, on nine 11 of this year, they held up, the front page of the New York Times, and there wasn't even a mention yeah. of 9-11 on there. Yeah. And they were like, isn't yeah. this weird? Like, why, what is going on? Like something, this almost, as you, like, like you said, it's almost as if it didn't happen. Nobody yeah. wants to see it. They want to turn around. They want to look the other way. And the damage is everywhere. I'm also hearing, which is very disturbing, that it's having an effect on the amount of people that are actually joining the military. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, recruit, recruiting and retention is at an all-time low. So there's actually two ways that Afghanistan is affecting the military. Three. The first one, and no one talks about this one either, is most social scientists, David, will agree that for a liberal democracy to thrive, you need to have institutions that you trust. Okay. And you need to be able to trust their narrative. So, so at a political level, the media, uh, the military, the police, you know, those, those stewards of democracy, right? We need to be able to have these institutions that we trust. Well, where's trust in Congress right now, right? Americans trust in Congress. Where's Americans trust in the media? Ever since 1972, 1973, we've seen just a plummet, double-digit plummet in those institutions. Well, there's been one institution post-Vietnam that has really held the line through the global war on terror, and that's been the U.S. military. You know, the U.S. military for several decades has enjoyed a level of trust with the American people that's been in the high 70s, right? Which is astounding, really. Um, It's now at 56%, and it dropped 11 points after the collapse in Afghanistan the largest drop in our history. Again, no one's talking about that, right? What happens when only half the country trusts the military? I mean, now we're getting back into Vietnam era stuff with your dad. Um, And that's a whole new thing when you have threats like Russia, China, North Korea, Pakistan, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, all brewing, right? And they're they're playing this into their calculus. And don't think that didn't play into Putin's calculus when he looked at Ukraine. And then on the other side of it, from a readiness perspective, you have recruiting and retention is in the toilet. It's in the toilet. And I I talk a lot to, I've seen the numbers, but I also talk a lot anecdotally to veterans and active duty members through our nonprofit work. And and, and they're all saying the same thing is they saw what happened. They saw how we treated our partners. They, They saw how we conducted ourselves. Yes. And, you know, a lot of these senior officers are scratching their head going, I don't know why recruiting so bad. We need veterans to get more involved. Most veterans right now are disgusted. 67% of veterans feel um, humiliated from the withdrawal. 73% feel betrayed. So when you've got that kind of veteran, when you've got that kind of veteran mindset in play, how can you think that the young recruits and service members don't see that and don't reflect that? I mean, there's always been the case that there's been yeah. this reciprocal relationship between the veteran population and the active duty and the guard and reserve. They're symbiotic. And to think that like you can do that and see, and see that kind of response 
the veteran population, in my assessment, is our moral compass. That's what we should be able to look at as a nation and go, which way do we go? Right. And they showed, they showed us on August 15th when they rushed into the breach and they started trying to save their partners. My question is, when as citizens are we going to follow their lead? Um, because I think that's kind of our last hope. Yeah, I agree. You know, when, when I grew up, of course, I grew up hearing my dad talk about the war, um, grandparents talking about World War II. When I went in to serve, I felt very proud about that yeah. idea that I was going to yeah. serve my country. But I got to tell you, if I was a young man today and I saw what happened and, and I had military like in my horizon for the future, that would scare the hell out of me to think uh -huh. that my own government didn't have my back. Uh -huh. um, it, yeah, you need, yeah. Yeah, I, I hope you'll watch my play at some point on Amazon. I will. I on, definitely on, on on Amazon Prime. It's uh, you can get to it through scottman.com, but that's the theme is it's a Green Beret sergeant who's fought the entire war. It's falling apart in Afghanistan and now his son wants to join. And so many of our population who have we have kids that serve and our biggest fear is as my character says in the play to his wife you know, how long before these dingy yellow ribbons turn back into dog shit like they threw at your dad and mine, only this time they're going to be throwing it at our son. And for a, for, a, for, a, for a soldier or a Marine who served with pride, there's nothing worse than to think about one's own citizenry, you know, responding to the service of our children that way. But let me ask you, if we're 56% trust now in the military, how far away are we from that? We're not that far. Right. And, you know, how do we how do we preserve that? That has to come to me from the citizenry demanding that these careerist leaders are moved out of office. There needs to be accountability, uh, public hearings for what happened in Afghanistan, not from a partisan. It needs to be bipartisan. But yeah. we need to look at for priority. We need to look at what do we need to do to help our most at risk Afghan partners? We need to ask, what do we need to do to to move from moral injury to moral recovery from our veterans? What do we need to do to hold politicians, diplomats, and senior officers accountable for the collapse and abandonment of Afghanistan? And what do we do to, to ensure it doesn't happen again? And then we need to look at the overall conduct of the war, man. If these were CEOs, I mean, you know better than me, they would, they would have been fired. Instantly. Instantly. Yeah. yeah. And so where is the accountability, the lessons learned, the corrections, the adjustments. Okay, we all made mistakes. I made tons of mistakes in Afghanistan. But where's the personal ownership? We need to own these things and move forward. Right. And uh, I think our veterans and our active duty, until they see that, you're going to have recruiting and retention problems, and you're going to have trust problems with the populace. And so we've got a serious leadership crisis on our hands at the senior level. It's largely around careerism. And it's to the point that they actually think they can do things like this and turn the page and we just will forget about it. And um, I don't think that's uh, how it's going to go. Right. It, I mean, you know, and the other thing is, is that we've got this top down message that um, we're horrific people and we shouldn't be proud of anything in this country to begin with. I mean, that that does not in you, know, you tell that to people long enough, especially young people that don't know their history, you start trying to change their history. And they don't know what to believe. Yeah, I mean, another you yeah. out in a generation. That's a great point. Another thing that social scientists say you need for liberal democracies to survive, and by liberal I don't mean left leaning. I mean you know open society. Yeah. And um, the other two things are you need you need um, 
You need social capital. In other words, you need trust among neighbors. Sure. How are we doing on that one? Right. Uh, and then you also need uh, a narrative, a strong narrative that you tell the world and you tell yourself. And it needs to be a unifying narrative. That's a good right. Point. And, and, and we don't have, we don't, I, uh, I asked one time I was doing an interview, David, of this um, conflict resolution expert um, who lives in Canada, really, really sharp guy. And he's done a lot of conflict resolution all over the country. And I asked him, I said, you know, when you look at the United States and the path we're on, there's a lot you're not saying right now. What would you say? And he said, I'm very worried about the direction the United States is going. And I said, well, what would you attribute that to if you could attribute it to one thing? And he said, you've lost your myth. You no longer have a national myth that brings your people together. And, um, you know, that's storytelling. And we know that storytelling, this is what I teach in the private sector. Storytelling is actually what binds us. It's what gives us our sense of self. It's how we make sense of the world. And our narrative now is a factioned, divided, tribal narrative that is told by divisionist leaders to their particular Mm in-groups to not only spin them up into a trance-like state of fear and anger, but to make the other outgroups the enemy. I mean, that's the oldest trick in the book. If you're going to sow and foment division and, and uh, discontent is to yep. use narrative in that way instead of a binding, unifying, bridging narrative. When's the last time you saw a leader step forward with a narrative that unified and bridged? Haven't. Haven't. I can't even remember. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, no. maybe Reagan. Maybe Reagan. Maybe Reagan. Maybe Reagan and then Kennedy before that. But I yeah. mean, that's, you know, look at what happened to him. So, yeah, it, oh, yeah, there's a cost. There's a cost yes, to that. There is that we're learning that. I think, you know, it, and when I think to myself, why is it that for so many years th- this country would stand up and fight for itself? And all of a sudden we're seeing like nobody wants to talk about it, nobody wants to address the issues. There's horrific things happening all over the place very disconcerting things happening in our government and nobody's saying anything. And I think, what is it that has scared people? Well, when you look over a period of time, the things that have happened to individuals that have been either whistleblowers or they've come out and they, they've tried to give attention to the issues. And now we have this enormous cancel culture where they'll shut anybody up for any reason, totally destroy their lives um, for just thinking completely different than what yeah. the planned narrative is. You, you, I think the, the underlying reason is people are scared to death. Because if you talk well, to people I, privately, they'll tell you a different story, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I went through my own version of this. We all go through it. If we decide to lead uh, in moments when, you know, there's a moral choice to be made. Yeah. And um, for me, this was the hardest element of moral leadership that I ever experienced in my life. Not because, you know, I knew what the right thing was. And just like so many others and sisters who were veterans in active duty and civilian volunteers, but at the same time, I also knew, okay, what's this going to cost me? You know, this is going to cost me for sure. Um, a lot of work, a lot of, uh, clients. It's going to cost me certainly the mentors, the generals, the admirals, the senior enlisted advisors that I had revered for years, I'm going to have, they are on the wrong side of this thing. I, I, you know, and this is what I started to think about writing the book. Um, I had 
generals, flag officers reaching out to me directly through surrogates, telling me to tone it down, tamp it down. You don't want to do this. You're a quiet professional. Um, and I still do. You know, I've had the FBI come to my house um, to just pay a visit, you know, yeah, and yeah. see what's going on. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I don't know what else will come from this, but, but I can tell you when you start talking openly about administrations and senior military officers and diplomats and moral injury and not being in the public space and leading like you are it, that the air is thin and there are not a lot of people around you. Right. Um, and I just personally think, you know, like I said, at the end of the book, what's your pineapple express, you know, this was ours. This was the veterans, but what's yours? Because the reality is nobody else is coming. If we're waiting for some leader to come into the fray, into the arena on the white horse and save the day, I don't think they're coming. I, I think, I think that it's going to come from us. It's going to come from moms and dads, brothers and sisters, leaders, veterans, business owners in a civil society kind of way where we have a say, we vote, we lead. And honestly, the other thing I would say too, David, is I'm, I'm actually less concerned about the issues themselves, and they're bad, mm -hmm. as how we treat each other when we discuss the issue, right? Our ability, we have fallen into this shadow tribal behavior that is, we can't even have a, a civil discourse Right. around an issue. And, and that's where I think we need the leadership. We yeah. need leaders to call out bad behavior on both sides of the aisle. And frankly, we need to clean house in DC. Yes. We need to clean house on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. Well, when, you know, when discourse turns into, I'm going to do anything to shut you up, we're not problem solving. We just want our own, oh. our own way. And, and that's it. I mean, you, you don't get, you don't solve problems right. that way. Right. Right. And social media has greatly contributed to that. We know yeah. that it was engineered and designed to lump us into in-groups and out-groups. So it actually facilitates primal behavior, but we do it unconsciously. So we basically are going into a feud-like state of fear-based and anger-based behavior, demonstrating primal you know, outcomes, but in this su supposedly sophisticated environment that's highly technological. But what we're actually doing is practicing tribalism on each other factions mm -hmm. even it's worse than tribalism in this sense and the leaders that we have in office are fomenting this they know it they know how it's played and they do it brilliantly and the problem with that is that that ends in what you've seen it ends in violence it ends in organizational collapse uh and it's not good you know it's it's a, it, it's really what happened in afghanistan yeah. and we're we're not immune to it you know and i'm not a sky is falling kind of guy but, you know, Sebastian Younger is right in his book when he says, you know, veterans who come home from war are more than willing to die for their country, but they don't know how to live for it. And the reason that they're so upset and the reason that we see our veterans withdrawing right now is because we're tearing each other apart. You know, the fabric of our society is we're tearing each other apart. Neighbors are trashing neighbors, friends are unfriending friends. Yeah. And for veterans to have to sit and watch that. I mean, you know this as a veteran, like that's not, that's like watching your parents beat the crap out of each other. Right, right. It's horrific. It's horrific. It's traumatic. And it brings home all of the stuff that you thought you kept over there, you know? And um, I hope people take stock of that. You know, it's why I wrote my play. It's why I wrote the book. Because honestly, 
this leader, this outcome, and I get it with the fear, I agree with you, but I think it's going to take a level of bottom-up leadership that we haven't seen since the early 1900s. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think history even says that, right? It's going to, when the leadership's gone at the top, the populist has to come stand up for something or nothing's going to change. Or, or we lose, or we lose everything. And, and the good news is there's actually precedent for that. Robert Putnam in his book, The Upswing, a social great social scientist, he talks about how in the early 1900s, the country was at a very, very low point in, uh, in where we were that, you know, in civil society, there was huge factioning among politics. There was haves and have nots. Infrastructure was in disarray. Immigration was running rampant and unchecked. And then you had, um, crime in the, you know, this mass, uh, movement from the farms to the cities. And it was, it was causing the infrastructure, of the cities to collapse. Crime was rampant. And most of the pundits were saying, you know, America's on its last legs. But in final days. And then, you know, all of a sudden, uh, a couple of drunks in Akron, Ohio, decided that nobody was going to get them sober. So they decided to have a meeting and they called it Alcoholics Anonymous. And over here, the Rotary Club stood up to, uh, to engage at a community level. Uh, the Junior League, the NAACP, Future Farmers of America. And, it, and what ended up happening was the longest running period of social capital bridging trust in American history. It ran all the way until 1972. And you don't hear a lot about it, but what I love about it is Putnam has mapped it out and he looked at this and, and he believes that we're due for another upswing. And I, I agree. I think that what you saw with Pineapple and Dunkirk and these other groups mm -hmm. was the first shot across the bow of an upswing. I think people are, I think people are tired of it. I think people yeah. are look, looking in their arena and they're saying, you know what? I'm not good with this. I, um, nobody else is coming. I'm, I'm not good with my kids growing up in this. I'll run for office. I'll run for the PTA. I'll coach this travel ball team. I'll restore this tree that's functionally extinct, you know? Right. Um, and I I'll, get that book. I've never read that book. That sounds like an amazing book. It, it is. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a long read, you know, it's a, but I tell you, I, for the kind of work that you do, David, and the, and the kind of audience that dials into this, I would recommend it because I think it is a, it's in, it's encouraging to see that level of analysis and data that shows clearly a macro level precedent of an upswing in hard times and okay. that it is very doable. And that frankly, every social capital group that we grew up with as kids started in that era. And it started with people just like you and me. Okay. All right. I will definitely get it. So you, we can now get your play on, on prime, right? Is that, did I hear you say that correct? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. And there'll be an, everybody watch that. Yeah. It's called last out. So if you go to scottman.com and you, you'll see uh, last out elegy of a green beret and it's on Amazon prime and, and it, you know, all of our proceeds for that go back to helping warriors and gold star family members tell their story. So just in watching the movie, you're actually helping uh, with veteran transition as well. Great. And if people want to know more about you, then go to scottman.com. That's a, that's the best place. You got scottman.com and the, you can, you know, what I would love people to do uh, to jump in right now is the Operation Pineapple Express book because we yeah, need definitely. Americans to get, to get behind. And also the audio, yeah, the audio book, I read it myself. Uh, I'm an actor and I do, you know, voice and all kinds of other things. So I, I spent five days in studio reading that book. And I think people, if you like to consume audio content, 
you'll love this book because I embody 21 characters. That's awesome. I love that. Yes, my audience loves audiobooks. I love audiobooks. I go through books right. like crazy. So um, that that's really great. I was going to ask you about that and I actually forgot because yeah. we got so deep into the conversation. Did you do an audiobook with it? And yeah. then did you read it yourself? I read so it that's myself. Cool. Yeah, I and that. I would say to anyone who's writing a book, self-published or whatever, if you get a chance to read your own book, do it because it's 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 one of the most fulfilling, um, cathartic experiences after after walking through that bloody membrane and putting that book into the world and having the moral courage to do that. Reading it to the world is just a, a really uplifting thing, and I hope people will do that. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you so much, and thank you for your service, sir. And to you as well, and to everybody out there for everything that they've done for the country. And um, I, you know, I still, I still have a lot of optimism about this country. I have three boys who are uh, going to serve this country. A couple of them already are, and um, I believe in it, man. I, I got a lot of skin in the game, and I know a lot of you all do too. And our best days are still in front of us, but I think it starts with us. Nobody else is coming. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Thank you very much, and thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you, David. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care now. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Successful Mind Podcast. If you like what you've heard and you want to know more, go to davidnagel.com forward slash free stuff.